who said there can be only one season of Robbie the Robot's Waiting. We're back for our action-packed sophomore season, and we're kicking things off with Highlander. Will you never say nevers again after watching HBO's new Victorian superhero show? We give our verdict. Marvel gets a god complex and an ensemble of celestial proportions in the trailer for Eternals. I'm Tanavi Patel. I'm Dave Bradley. I'm Richard Edwards. And there's all this plus JJ, AB, C and D Brooms, Mossman and sci-fi being better than it used to be in Robbie the Robot's Waiting, the podcast that has the manners of a goat. Hello, welcome back. Hi there. Hi. Season two. <laughs> Season two, exactly. Very exciting. Now we're going to have a shorter than usual what we've been watching this time uh, and part one because we're going to go big on the news because quite a lot's happened since we, we last did news. And also we've made a what we've been watching special, which you can go and listen to uh, anytime you like. So it's not like we've been ignoring science fiction and fantasy for the last month or so. But I think a good place to start is The Nevers. It was on American TV, I think, came out about mid-April, it's mid-May in the UK. It's the new show from Joss Whedon. He created it, he started working on it, but then left, uh, which we suspect might be connected to the controversy surrounding his time on Buffy and Angel. Now it's on HBO, and what did you think? I really enjoyed it, even though it's a bit of a mess. I'll tell you something else that surprised me as well. It's only six episodes at the moment. That mm-hmm. I was, I'm was so used to uh, to series being, uh, you know, eight, ten episodes more even, and and so on. The the fact that it was sort of six episodes, it's caught, caught me by surprise. I was, I, I, it's they're going to release it in two parts, right? Because this it sort of stops in the middle. That's where from what I've seen. Um, so that was kind of a surprise. But yeah, it's I I did like it. There's a lot to like about it. It's really rich, and there's a lot of stuff going on. Um, and it has some of. Um, Joss Whedon's trademarks on it, the, the good stuff. Obviously, he has been mired in controversy recently, as you said, but there's there's a lot of good about what J- Joss Whedon does with ensemble cast, and that's all in here. Um, but there's a lot crammed into it. Mm. Um, I mean, it's got this quite interesting premise that is very much a sort of superhero origin story, but it's Victorian London. I think it's sort of um, 1896 it starts, and, um, and there's a mystery that plays out. And as it goes on, you sort of find out more and more about the backstory, but essentially a some kind of alien ship uh, flies over London and uh, releases spores which uh, attach themselves to people and give them superpowers essentially and those are kind of known as the touched and they're about 90% women although some men are affected and then that's the that's the starting point but I don't know about uh, you folks but I thought there's just so many different things crammed into it that that setup I've just described is interesting enough in itself but then there's also mm-hmm. like there's an underground sex club going on and there's kind of politics <laughs> and there's uh, and there's a backstory for the the lead character who's great, by the way. She's great, but you don't yeah. sort of find out about that till later. And then there's then there's this whole kind of stuff with the beggar king, like a brilliant Nick Frost doing doing stuff. And and I thought that it was a, a little bit kind of it. It felt a little bit of um, it felt like it took a a little bit of time to get all these pieces in a row because there were a lot of pieces. And by that point the six episodes that have been released were over. I don't know, Chanavi, what did you think? <laughs> no, so I agree with you. Um, I have to say that overall I thought it was really good. And right out of the gate, it's really intriguing because of all those different elements. But And it has that superb opening scene, like action sequence um, as well, very steampunk, very, uh, very cool. Um, although my first thought, and I think my sister's thought too, was like, are we watching Anne Hathaway? Because um, <laughs> she does the main... The main um, lead actress really does look like but no it it was laura dunley as a sort of smart sassy amelia true and she's sort of the fighter and the leader of the orphanage which we come to find out is where a lot of the 
touched uh, women and men are hanging out. Um, and it's her along with Penance Adair, who's played by Anne Skelly. And they're both sort of very bold, very likable female leads. And um, and I think there is less, like maybe a touch of the, of the Buffy and Willow mm. to the two of them. Definitely. Um, She's um, the, um, <laughs> that kind of, um, the, yeah, the... Uh, her, her companion, the, the sort of a scientist person, she's that, got that sort of slightly bashful Willow character-like right. vibe. There's definitely a sort of a, right. um, you know, there's a, there are tropes that Joss Whedon clearly likes when he's building a team, and, and absolutely there's the relationship. It's almost like the relationship between Buffy and Willow, isn't it? Definitely. Absolutely. And then, so the, they seem to have sort of taken it upon themselves to kind of protect the touch of, of course, with anybody who's a bit different, you know, there's people who fear them, people who kind of want to use them and, um, and they themselves don't really understand their powers. And, um, so I do like that, that mystery that you get. And I think it just, the setting of the Victorian setting, I think it lends itself really well to the mystery, the sort of Sherlock Holmes sort of feel to things. Um, but I think that when there's all that contrast as well between the um, AI sort of side and the steampunk, the advanced technology, the robots, all those kind of things, and then the sort of very sort of basic living of a lot of those people in that Victorian setting. Um, and there's some great names. You mentioned Nick Frost. He makes a really good Beggar King. Yeah. You've got Ben Chaplin in there, who I did yeah. not recognize for like the first two episodes. I didn't realize it was him at all playing a sort of rough around the edges detective. Um, and you've got um, Olivia Williams, I think it is. Oh, out of Sixth Sense. Yeah. And That's also fun. out of um, Dollhouse, of course. So another Joss Whedon oh, yes. column. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Makes more sense. <laughs> yeah. So she plays a great matriarch as well. And you never really know what she's up to either. We've got a couple of cast, uh, cast members from Poldark as well, of course. Famously, Eleanor Tomlinson, um, who's in it. But also uh, the sort of, I want to say villain, but maybe it's more ambiguous than that, as things often are. Um, Lord Gilbert is played by Pip Troran, who is one of the villains of Poldark. So there's a couple of, uh, yes. uh, of the period period drama uh, uh, old-timers there as part of this. I think it is actually longer than six episodes. Um, they've, mm. they've made seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. See, I can count. Um, <laughs> so they're splitting season one in two halves. So yeah. we won't have to wait too long for that. And it's not like it's... <laughs> It's sort of a self-contained thing. I'm glad because with that final episode, as it starts, it's very different to the other episodes. And mm. I had to check whether I was still watching the same show. Yeah, same, same, I... same. There's no warning, is there? It just, it's a completely <laughs> yeah. different setup. None. And though, not to give any spoilers away, but I was very happy to see Claudia Black in there. Yeah, right. And it's, it's again, no spoilers for people, but it is a trick that Joss Whedon has pulled before. This felt, felt a lot like Dollhouse. In some respects, there's a, mm. there, again, I, I, I don't want to give too much away, but there's, there's, there are a couple of elements that are familiar to viewers of Dollhouse that feel like the same tricks were pulled on us. <laughs> <laughs> are we saying he's a one trick pony? <laughs> no, well, you know, two tricks. Uh, no, <laughs> no, no. Uh, so that's unfair. I don't, you know, why not go with what work and people know what they're getting from a Joss Whedon show. I haven't seen the Nevers yet, never say never, but I have been watching Army of the Dead, uh, which Ooh. is Zack Snyder's new zombie film. Um, I really liked it, actually. I think Dawn of the Dead, his remake of the George Romero, that was one of his earlier films, is one of his best. Uh, I like the way that he worked with fast zombies. I thought it was, was quite scary, really nicely done. Mm. This is... I kind of spent the whole thing thinking, is this set in the same universe? And mm. I don't think it is. But I think it's quite an interesting take on zombies. It, it's they're definitely not slow, 
Um, and actually, th- there's some quite cool mythology stuff about it. I mean, there's different types of zombie in it. You've got shamblers, who are the sort of traditional Romero zombies, and also alphas, who, who actually kind of intelligent and communicate with one one another. And they're actually quite scary. But so basically, the idea of this film is that there's a zombie outbreak, kind of takes over the whole of Las Vegas. It becomes they just wall it all off, so it's just like the city of the zombies, mm. and then a bunch of mercenaries go in to uh, are sent into Las Vegas before it is nuked to destroy the zombie threat um, to recover some money from a vault in Las Vegas. So basically, it's Ocean's Eleven meets Dawn of the Dead meets Escape <laughs> from New York. <laughs> that's, Amazing. That's exactly it. Um, uh, and yeah. what more could you want? I mean, so you've got like an ensemble of. I guess your ragtag ensemble of people with their Motley different skills, crew. you know, like the safe cracker, the people who are good with weapons, all that sort of thing. And they face off against the zombies. And Dave Bautista's in it, right? He's the lead. Right. Yeah, reportedly he turned down a role in uh, the Suicide Squad with James Gunn to do this because he wanted the chance to actually be the lead. So ah. so he, he's like a mercenary. Uh, his daughter is, is a really important character in it and it's kind of he has to rebond with his daughter while fighting off all these zombies naturally as you would do that's perfect timing for it mm. <laughs> um, and you know it, it's it's very stylish as you'd expect from uh, Zack snyder um you know looks great uh, there's some really cool mythology bits but the best bit of the film is the opening credits right um, absolutely i agree with you the whole outbreak sort of <laughs> taking place in Las Vegas to a sort of loungy version of Viva Las Vegas. Yeah. I kind um, of wish with a bit of slow-mo and things in there, I kind of wish they'd done the whole movie like that. I think it would have been yeah. awesome. <laughs> and also it would have been over a lot quicker. Um, <laughs> Were you not a fan? I actually liked it, but I think that, so I realized like there was, it was very much, it was a heist movie with zombies and Dave Bautista at the centre of it, you know, leading the kind of motley crew whilst doing, trying to do some uh, father-daughter bonding. Um, and I, I enjoyed it because I think if you take it as, as it is, it's, there's not that much storyline and it's um, no. or character development, but it's just, it's a good action film. And you don't, and there's enough mythology in there, as you said, to kind of give it a little bit more, um, it isn't just zombies, there's different types and they have, meaning and purpose and ultimately at the end they kind of win i think which is i don't spoiler alert um but don't necessarily um i wasn't necessarily expecting it that way i when i think they sort of go in for the heist as well um it's 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 just I don't know how to describe it. It's just action laden. Um, There's like several minutes sometimes where there's just kind of screaming and not actually actually any words. Um, And I think that part of it, sometimes it can just feel a bit too busy. It gets a little bit difficult to watch. Um, But the action was great from the opening sequence kind of on. And the premise of it does make it stand apart a little bit from the other sort of zombie fair out there. Um, I think Dave Bautista does a decent job as a sort of disillusioned hero turned mercenary. Now, um, I did realise watching this that he only has one way of saying a line. His intonation <laughs> is identical in everything. <laughs> and I quite like him, but it's like, you say every line the same. Same way, yeah. And that, that kind of growl as well. <laughs> like, it's a bit hard to tell sometimes if he's angry or not. or <laughs> You don't really know what he's feeling. But yeah, I, I think his feelings so are Bautista. <laughs> 
Um, although there was there was a couple of uh, really cool characters in there. I like the safecracker, um, who sort of has his own sort of bonding moment with uh, one of one of Dave Bautista's crew. But and Tig- also and Tignatera, uh, yeah, who, who basically just wheels out her sort of part from Star Trek Discovery absolutely. and oh, steals the, the scene. She is, yeah. right? And she just absolutely steals it. And she's basically playing this sarcastic helicopter pilot. Um, I don't think she un- does anything without sarcasm. <laughs> <laughs> but she nails it, so why not? She totally does. Um, but it's unfortunate that it's just not more of her. Um, yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's a bit of a shame. And I have to say, it, although it kind of ends on a cliffhanger, uh, I think um, it started out a lot better than it ended. Yeah, I, I think I'm very over Walking Dead style zombies. Mm, mm. You know, and it's like I like the fact that this did something different. And I think, right. you know, Zack Snyder is a divisive director, and I don't like everything he's done, but his films do look great. And I think, I think here, he, like being away from the kind of weight of making a big sort of Superman and Batman film, mm. um, I think that there's something quite freeing for him. And I think he's having fun. I mean, it is incredibly gory. Um, and he's, he really lays that on, but then yeah. he has a zombie tiger. That's true. <laughs> and, and you know, how, how many films would not be improved by a zombie tiger? Yeah. Yeah. And their reaction to the zombie tiger as well. <laughs> I, I love the fact that the zombie tiger just sort of lulls on sort of car bonnets. Like, yeah. A, <laughs> just, well, I don't know. I, what, I don't care. What would you do? Yeah. Well, a zombie tiger, what would you do? Yeah. I've, I've never asked one. <laughs> exactly. And because there can only be one part one, we're about to move on to part two when we're going to talk Highlander. But not Highlander 2? No. (laughs) No. It might come up. It may. Hello and welcome to part two. Uh, It's time to welcome our first guest of season two. Uh, Guy Haley is a former deputy editor of SFX and editor of Death Ray and White Dwarf magazines. But more recently, he's turned his attentions to fiction of his own. As well as writing numerous novels for Black Library, this guy really knows his space marines. He's the creator of Richards and Klein, the Holmes and Watson of the AI world. He's also proof that, as the Ninth Doctor once said, every planet has a north. Hi, Guy. Hello, how are you doing? Thanks for having me on. Welcome, welcome. So what have you been enjoying uh, sci-fi and fantasy-wise lately? Well, do you know, um, obviously, I started my career on SFX because I loved science fiction, fantasy, and and horror as well, though less so than than I do now, because I'm really into horror these days. Um, And so I just keep up with everything, basically. I can be quite snobby, like I always was quite snobby about certain shows and whatnot. But recently, I've really been enjoying uh, Jupiter's Legacy by Mark Miller, who, mm-hmm. um, you know, that show, uh, I read several reviews saying it was really slow, but I loved it. I thought it was great. I really enjoyed the 1930s classic Golden Age riff that they had, you know, the the, uh, the flashbacks going backwards and forwards to the current day. And I thought the the questions and the philosophies that it, rose were, it, it raised were really quite interesting. So I, I really, really enjoyed that. And uh, just before I came on here, I've been playing uh, a card game, a fantasy card game, um, a deck building game by um, Wise Wizard Games. It's called Epic. 
Um, they are very famous for doing a really cool spaceship combat game called Star Realms, which we also really enjoy. But um, yeah, we were playing that up to the wire. In fact, I was so absorbed in it, I almost missed my spot with you, chaps, this evening. You've still got a deck of cards in your hand. I have. To, I've uh, literally <laughs> just put all the cards and dice and the little tokens and whatnot on the shelf. I was like running around like a maniac. But yes, it's all this way now. Um, but my hands, yes, still smell of freshly printed cards. <laughs> I mean, you also have a white wolf in the background. I do. This is my uh, Mac, uh, Maximus, my second Alaskan Malamute. He's my tribute to Game of Thrones, basically. Wow, he's huge. He is a big dog. <laughs> 50 <laughs> kilos. He's heavier than my wife. Not many men can say that. <laughs> I mean, that is properly living sci fi and fantasy. It is. Got your own dire wolf. He yeah. does pull me on a little, he pulls me on my bike. I've got a little sled for him. So I'm like a little goblin in a wolf chariot, you know. <laughs> I'm back where I belong, really. We're all in the strange folk. It's marvelous up here. <laughs> And um, what else I've been enjoying? I've actually watched it. I've, I've recently been trying to get into writing films and podcasts and things. So I was in talks with a guy to write a horror movie recently. So I've been watching tons and tons and tons of, of, of uh, mid to um, low budget uh, horror movies too recently, especially supernatural stuff because I, I like the supernatural stuff. And that's been really cool. Uh, apart from I made the foolish mistake of watching the beginning of the latest Hellraiser movie, which was diabolically bad, if you'll forgive the pun. I've also been listening to some sci-fi podcasts. I've been enjoying the Black Tapes. I've been listening to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and the uh, Lovecraft Investigations on BBC Sounds, uh, which is... Oh, yeah. Really like that. I thought that was really cool. They're all still up there, aren't they? I think the um, you can still get them on the BBC Sounds, can't you, at the moment? Yeah. And download, yeah, good. Well, I think that's the great thing about podcasts is that they seem to just hang around forever. You know, I mean, I suppose that's the same with uh, TV shows now too. Um, but yeah, I've been enjoying the Boys, the Expanse, oh, yeah. all the streaming stuff. You know, Inside Number Nine's just come back. I watched the first episode of that the other night. I love Inside Number Nine, but the first episode was a little bit self-indulgent in a dramatist's kind of way. I thought <laughs> it was a mix of Commedia dell'arte with the uh, um, Reservoir Dogs. <laughs> it, didn't, it didn't really do it for me. I prefer their creepy, creepy uh, sci-fi sort of um, horror ones, really. But yeah, I mean, yeah. to be honest, if it's science fiction and fantasy and horror, I'll watch it. I mean, you were on SFX at the turn of the century. Um, I, I mean, turn of the 20th, 21st century, not yeah. the 20th century. You made me sound like a Victorian. Uh, I know, I know. <laughs> I, re- I realised that as soon as I'd said it. You just reeled off all those shows. Yeah, just so much good stuff. Would you have killed to have that sort of amount of stuff to write about? When oh, man. oh my God. The 19, the mid 1990s was such a dry spell for science fiction. I remember going to interview people um, and they, there was so, so much snobbery against the three genres back in those days. And it was, it was weird because that genre, that snobbery was there in the 1980s, but it wasn't as heavily pronounced because there was a lot more of this stuff being made. But in the 1990s, they were so desperate to distance themselves from science fiction. There was something called The Last Train that um, ITV put out in about 90, 1997, 1998. And I went up to Manchester to do a set visit. And I remember speaking to the um, the producer, who was uh, uh, quite a posh, high-powered lady. And, and she was insisting the whole time when I was speaking to her and referring to it as apocalyptic science fiction. Uh, apocalyptic fiction, rather. I'm going, but it's science fiction, really, isn't it? And, she, and in the end, she went, yes, but please don't call it that. You know? <laughs> 
And it was about a bunch of people that went onto a train. There was an asteroid strike. At the same time, someone dropped a can of, like, I don't know, something that powers a soda stream that froze them all. And, and they went into suspended animation and woke up in the future. I'm like, you can't get more science fiction than that. This is ridiculous. I mean, well, how many boxes does it tick? Exactly. Like, all of them. I mean, if it, 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 could, only have, it could only tick all the boxes if it had a mutant. But yeah, back then it was terrible. I remember we were often scratting about before Buffy came along. It was when Buffy came along that things began to change. But mm-hmm. we were scratting about with Stargate and Highlander the Raven and oh, yeah. just so much. There was just nothing, nothing there. It was terrible. It was, I, I mean, mean, yeah, the amount, the kind of collateral and assets that were for these things as well. Rich and I were talking the other day, Island of the Raven springs to mind because isn't the cover just, just a woman climbing a rope or something like that? There's just, yeah, not, there's just no artwork for these things. And it was really, really bad <laughs> as well because it was blown up from a, a very small, like 35 millimeter slide and they didn't have any bigger pictures. And even back in the day with the computer technology, it just looked, it looked so blurry and awful compared to everything else. That was one of the worst covers we did, actually. In fact, we, we had some sort of um, post-mortem meeting about just how awful that cover was, if I recall correctly. <laughs> yeah, it was it was terrible, but you're completely right, Rich. We would have killed for this stuff back then. We really would have done. Does that still exist a little bit, of that snobbery, though? Like, I remember, I think was it one of you guys saying recently there was that Lily James movie yesterday, and they really didn't want to be viewed... But where they, you know, oh, it's the a guy, fantasy, isn't it? It's the, it's the, the Beatles, yeah, 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 where the guy sort of goes back and is sort of one of the Beatles, and then they really didn't want to be seen as a a sci-fi movie. But obviously, there's the element of the time travel. Yeah, I think it does still happen, but not as much. I mean, certainly ten years ago, it was big. I remember going on. Um, on set for something that had time travel involved in it, you know, and, you know, t- you don't get much more sci-fi than time travel. Right. So, and, and actually you got people saying, well, it's not science fiction. It, it's better than that. It's proper drama. It's like, yeah. What? It's, yeah. You, you know, it's, and it's like, don't steal the, the sort of plot elements of science fiction and then say you're, you're better than it. You know, right, it's, right. I think now I think it's kind of changed because sci-fi is so ubiquitous, yeah. you know, it's, yeah. it's very right. difficult. You, you know, everything now that is big, is science fiction or fantasy? I think a lot of filmmakers and, and novelists uh, have woke up. Novelists are notorious, though, for trying to do science fiction and go, nobody's ever done this before. And you read the synopsis and go, Asimov did that in 1952. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> you, you, a lot of serious filmmakers uh, really, really see the potential of science mm-hmm. fiction. And a lot of them became serious, like James Cameron, became mm-hmm. serious filmmakers because their science fiction. Uh, films were so successful Um, it's like a lot of things i think in in culture in our modern society where you have a small elite of people who determine what is culturally acceptable and then there's everybody else and you know and they wonder why then they don't their their projects aren't successful or they don't get voted into power or whatever it's so easy these days and i think it's become even easier with the advent of the internet to build a little bubble around yourself and Mm -hmm. only surround yourself with the people that um you know, sound and, and, and talk exactly like you do. Um, and, and science fiction has suffered from that in the past, I think. It has been uh, at the sharp end of, of uh, cultural elitism, sadly. Mm. And, and I think, I mean, I've probably said this before on the podcast, but I think a big thing now is that the generation who are making a lot of movies, making a lot of the decisions, grew up on Star Wars. You know, right. they kind of, they get it yeah. in a way that 
after Star Wars came out, you had all these executives who thought, oh, this film is big. Uh, let's go out and make the black hole, uh, which is <laughs> nothing like Star Wars at all, yeah. apart from the fact that it's got space and robots. Some robots. Yeah. And, and yeah, they were sort of feeling around thinking, oh, yeah, what is it that was this magic about Star Wars? But mm. now, you know, if you've got someone like J.J. Abrams, you know, flawed as, say, The Rise of Skywalker was, he kind of gets Star Wars and he kind of gets that, that fan reaction he's, he's like the world's biggest he's like the uber nerd though isn't he jj abrams he's the fanboy's fanboy he's like yeah. fanboy squared he he really <laughs> wants, he understands this stuff so much unfortunately he disappears into it like a tiny black box i think sometimes i think the creative industries now are full of people that grew up on star wars where our world is actually run by tech geniuses who were obsessed right. with star trek you know it's everywhere yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I've been saying for ages that J.J. Abrams must have clones. I've been saying that for <laughs> so long. Stuff he's doing. And now, yeah. now he's taken on another massive project. I'm, yeah. sh- I'm sure that's like clone number four. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, the guy exactly. does not sleep. Oh, or maybe it's actually J.J. 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 Yeah. Abrams. Yeah. Or, or, or unless it's like J.A. Abraham, J.B. Abraham. J.B. was the most successful one. <laughs> the most successful one of the clones. So, Guy, you've been busy writing books, and actually you're bringing out your very first book, but it's not a kind of time loop. You're, you've actually gone back. Have to Back to a different future, as it were. <laughs> Yeah, um, well, okay, so after I, I left SFX, I went to work for Games Workshop for a while, and then I worked on Death Rain, and I worked for SFX Freelance for a little bit with your good selves, and around about 2011, uh, 2010, 2011, I started to write novels, and, and in that past decade now, I've written like 36 novels, I think, wow. or something like that. <laughs> so you're writing three novels a year? Actually, sometimes I write five novels a year. Oh my God. Um, and what I, have you been doing? Yeah, you're, just showing, you're just showing the rest of us up, guys. I think you also I have a clone, JJ. right? That's what yeah. it is. I do, yeah. I bought JJ Abrams' cloning machine at knockdown prices once he finished it. Because um, it's funny when you're saying that, because people do say about me that I must have a clone. Um, no, the brute, the brute fact of it is that I've discovered the only way to make money writing um, fiction is by writing lots and lots of books that are reasonably successful. But if you just try to do one or two and be really arty about it, then you still have to keep your job in the council office dealing with the bins or whatever. Because um, most writers, joking aside, these days have to have a, um, a job because um, they don't make enough money out of it. But Because I, I write so many books, most of which are a games workshop. I, uh, I write full time, and I have done. I've only been doing novels now. I abandoned my journalism about six or seven years ago. Six, seven years ago is the last bit of sort of factual based stuff that I did. Hmm. So, Riches and Klein, which is the book I've got out now, was as Rich rightly says, um, was the first uh, Reality Thirty Six, which comprises the first half of that book, was the very first novel that I wrote, um, and it had a sequel called Omega Point. Um, they were the first and third books that I wrote they're set in the 21st century in a world ravaged by climate change and uh, the geopolitical situation has changed basically I'm a really big fan of what I call a whole cloth world I don't like books where I'm reading about some glorious fantasy city and I'm thinking but where are all the poor people how do they get how do they get rid of their garbage where are the dogs eating the lepers kind of thing? You know, I'm not talking about grimdark levels of stuff necessarily, but I'm just talking about all the, all the different facets of human society that you get. So whenever I try to create a world, I try to envisage how that world would work and, um, or at least just leave it a space for it there. 
even if it's just a couple of references here and there, how, how everything goes together. I mean, I think one thing about literary science fiction you often notice is that it all hinges on one big idea. And that's fine from a philosophical standpoint. But quite often that one big idea takes away from what I enjoy in science fiction as a science fiction fan, which is living and breathing in a secondary world. Right. So Richard's and Klein's world is our world. And I read loads and loads and loads of stuff like 10 years ago, loads of science papers and, and science magazines and, and history magazines and politics and try to extrapolate what the, 20, the early 22nd century might look like. Um, and, and that's what I did. I'm quite pleased to say that it stood up quite well. But anyway, the basically detective stories. You've got Richards, who's a, an AI, who's a class five AI. There are only 70 of them because the rest of them, when they came online, went a bit crazy. And the reason for that is that they're the most human AIs that have ever been created and not all of them could hack it. For want of a better word, uh, they're the only AIs that have a soul um, in a kind of sense. And his partner, who's his Watson to uh, Richards's Holmes, is Otto Klein, who's a retired, uh, or a veteran, we should say, a German military cyborg who used to be cutting edge, but is now really outdated and getting old and mourning the death of his wife. And they exist in this world and they have all these crazy adventures. Now, I've wanted to, I really enjoyed writing these books, um, but they were the first books I ever wrote. And I, for years, I've wanted to go back to them and rewrite them and reimagine them, really, and pull them together and deal with some of the criticisms I got in the reviews that I read at the time, some of which I thought were valid, and, and make it all into one um, story that ran on properly uh, and, and was all of a piece. So I approached Angry Robot, who published it originally last year, and they were they were pretty keen on the idea. So I'm hoping that it'll find a, a new audience and that some of my uh, Warhammer readers will pick it up because it's uh, it's it's more me in some respects. It's got my it's very much got my sense of humour shot right the way through it. But it's also quite philosophical and it approaches a lot of big questions about what it means to be human um, and where do we draw the line between um, a human being and, a, and, a, and a, an artificially constructed sentient creature mm-hmm. is a, a person who is a simulation of a dead person, even though they look, act and behave exactly like the person that's died. Is that the same person? So, that you know, I mean, that's something that's been tackled in science fiction before, but that this my, uh, I put my own spin on a lot of these old science fiction um, ideas, uh, introduced some of my own, and say in a world which, um, looking at the way we're going, looks more and more likely. I was rewriting the timeline for Richards and Klein, actually, and there's a big flu pan- pandemic in it. Oh, Not wow. so in the future. <laughs> oh, now, my God. Yeah, so I was thinking, ah, called that one, right? Um, <laughs> more or less. We'll put a link to the book in the episode description as well if people want to check that out when they can click through. But you have got some more Space Marines adventures coming up soon, right? Oh, God. Well, the funny thing is I've had two lots of books out this week, both of which I rewrote, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I always have more Space Marine adventures coming out. Um, I did a very, very successful trilogy of books for Games Workshop called the Dark Imperium Trilogy, which uh, marks the point where Warhammer 40, the Warhammer 40,000 story moved on. And I wrote Dark Imperium to time with the release of, I can never remember, the, I think it was 8th edition, I can never remember the edition numbers now, there's been so many Warhammer 40,000s. Um, and then the, the the IP kind of developed and evolved and, and, and changed a little bit. So, and I got involved in this really big new series, which is intended to sort of take over from the Horus Heresy, because that's coming to an end now. I was also involved in that. Horus Heresy is the big, Games Workshop's big, multi-part, um, it's like 60-odd books long, kind of uh, huge mega series, but it's coming to an end with the Siege of Terror. 
Um, and I'm working on this thing called Dawn of Fire, which details what's going on in the galaxy right now, rather than 10,000 years ago in the past, which Taurus Heresy does. And the Dark Imperium trilogy has been rewritten. It's been gently retconned just to make it fit in better with that. Mm-hmm. So I've got that. But then I'm also writing. I've, I'm, today I was working on another book for Games Workshop. I've got another one to finish in August. I've got another one to finish in November. Um, but I'm also in talks with people to publish some more original fiction. And hopefully, fingers crossed, that's going to go somewhere. So Nice. Fantasy in the mid-80s looked very different to Game of Thrones and Lord of the Rings. In fact, it looked kind of like a music video. And Scotsmen talk like Frenchmen, and Egyptians talk like Scots. So (laughs) the big question is, 35 years on, is Highlander still immortal? I have always loved Highlander since I first saw it. And I should say, I didn't see it at the cinema. For some reason, I, I can't remember exactly why, but I saw it when it came out on video a couple of years later. I, got, I remember renting it from a store in, uh, in town in London and, and, and uh, for just for the weekend. Actually, I think it's a film that's best watched on VHS. <laughs> Maybe. This is it. <laughs> the, the thing is, like, yeah. you, joke, you joke there about how it looked like um, a music video. Yeah, it totally does. It's, it absolutely does. It's so weird, like an 80s music video. In fact, it also reminded me of the intro to the equalizer it looks like it's got this kind of weird uh sort of grungy tv new york uh look to it it's all weird angles it's all dutch angles and just really weird crops and things as well and, and lights and rain and um somehow though it's better than the sum of its parts it's an odd thing if you watch it with somebody you just kind of watch one scene and see it through a, a, the eyes of someone who's seen it for the first time so tanabi i might, might come to you next for your take on it the the um it's any individual scene is a bit crazy, yeah. but somehow, <laughs> but somehow, I sort of love it. The whole thing. Um, uh, I don't know. So, Tanami, was this your first time seeing it? Okay, this is going to sound really bad because I think, I think I saw it a long time ago, but possibly but just put it out of I- your mind. <laughs> Well, I think probably as happens a lot. I think when it came on, it must have come on TV at some point when mm. I was young. And so normally I would kind of like catch snippets before my dad was like, I'm not watching that and turn it over for anything sci-fi. That's usually how it works. But I, the only kind of scenes I really remember, the sort of iconic ones with, you know, Lambert in the kill and fighting with the sword and looking mm. a bit like He-Man. And, um, and so then again, for the second time this week, when I started watching it on Netflix, I had to check that I had the right movie because I was like, <laughs> where are the Scottish people and why am I watching wrestling? <laughs> oh. <laughs> so, well, yeah. It's- um, yeah. <laughs> and then, um, but then the first thing I think that hit me was the Queen soundtrack. Mm. And I was like, oh, this is a bit like Flash Gordon here already. <laughs> so this, yeah. So, and, um, and again, you're right. It's like greater than the sum of its parts. Mm. It, it was a lot of fun, even though there are lots of like, uh, almost like little mini movies in between. Right. And, and the um, transition between them is, is so intense, isn't it? They do all these kind of <laughs> clever transitions. Just on that note for a second, though, the, the, you're talking about the Queen soundtrack. And of course, Flash, we've spoken about on this podcast before. Whereas the, the, there's a sort of lightness of touch to the Flash soundtrack. It's kind of very silly and upbeat. This is kind of, I think it's really moving. Like the, like who wants to live forever and God. just one real job. They're so melancholy, right? You know, yeah, it's, yeah. it's so moving. I'm going to have to come clean and say that I really love Highlander. I always yeah. have, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I didn't get to see it at the cinema because actually I was a little bit too young. But I remember watching it um, when it was on, oh, it was on late night somewhere, probably on Channel 4 when I, I was going through a phase right. in my teens of staying up really, really late at night waiting for the Red Triangle um, thing <laughs> on Channel 4. <laughs> I'll watch that. Um, 
And, uh, you know, I remember it really, really fondly. But the weird thing is, is uh, the last time I saw it, it was about, I don't know, it was, it, was, it was probably a couple of years ago, weirdly. I didn't rewatch it for this because it's just so clear in my head, right? But I watched it again. And um, I was, I've been taking my son, who's a big science fiction fan, and he wants to be a filmmaker himself. So I've been taking him through all the classic 80s stuff, like right. The Predator, Alien, Aliens, um, The Thing, all stuff which he's far too young for. But um, he really, really loves all that stuff, yeah. And we decided to watch it. And I was watching, I was going, Jesus, this is actually really, really good. You know, <laughs> it, it's, it, you watch, I watched Predator, um, and it just looks so cheap. Even the Terminator, which is lauded as this great time travel mo- movie with all these seminal special effects, it doesn't have the flair and the visual panache and the sheer style of Highlander. You say, or you can say, yeah, well, it look, it's got all these weird Dutch angles and, and, and whatnot, and it looks like a pop video. But it's got this, this fantastic level of, of visual ambition to it that most films in that time just didn't. And on top of that, it looks really quite expensive compared to um, a lot of the films of, of the, the, same, the same era. So mm-hmm. I, I, although I remembered it very, very fondly, I watched it again, I thought, oh, this is just going to be cheesy fun. I was actually, this is actually really well paced. The, the story's original and, and cool. The special effects, apart from the bit where you can see the wires on Christopher Lambert at the end, um, <laughs> there. Um, and, um, are really cool the music's fantastic I love it I love it I think it, it is greater than the sum of its parts but those parts fit together in in a way which I just I just love it just evokes all the best um, of sort of crazy fantasy stuff that I love and I think it's a, a marvellous film really like it but it's not surprising, really, that it looks like a music video because Russell Mackay, the, the director, was a music video director. I mean, he, he worked with uh, XTC, Human League. He did the video for the video killed the radio star with the bubbles. Oh. You know, so, so, you know, visual styling was kind of his thing. Um, it's funny you say the Terminator there, actually, because I was watching this and I think how much the New York stuff felt like bits of the terminator even the way that christopher lambert is dressed looks like carl reese in the terminator yeah, you know? yeah, yeah 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 very true and he's got a sword rather than a shotgun up his sleeve kind yeah. of thing yeah. Yeah. how does he fit that in there it? <laughs> it's, it's so funny when he when he just he pulls it out from his coat in the car park it's hilarious <laughs> It's not hilarious. It's art, Dave. <laughs> and I think it. I think it really speaks to um, a, a romantic impulse in, in science fiction and fantasy, which isn't often acknowledged. I mean, you see it in um, Outlander, which is on Amazon these days, which is hugely, hugely popular, and I think borrows very, very heavily from Highlander. Well, half the name for starters. Yeah, yeah. It's called, it is called Outlander, isn't it? It is. Yeah, it's called yeah. Outlander. Because I always confuse it with that um, uh, with that uh, Jim Carizial film uh, with the Vikings, which I also really yes. enjoy. Oh, and um, um, and Outland. With, and Outland, uh, yeah, with, with Sean Connery. Also had Sean Connery in it. Yeah. Um, and the other thing that um, that Highlander also, I think, bears a lot of similarity with, but it's a much purer example of, is the vampire romance myth. He's very competent. He's silent. He's strong. He's a hero. He's lived forever. He's like the ultimate daddy figure, basically, this guy. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> and, and it's the same with vampire fiction. Um, but the, the good thing about, and you know, it's interesting, I think, that Highlander came out at a time when vampire fiction 
principally through Anne Rice, was really, really beginning to take off. And back then, the vampires were were quite dangerous and nasty, whereas, you know, by the time this century rolled around, they were glowing in sunlight. They were twinkling, (laughs) which I just think is ridiculous. Every vampire romance story should end with the hero tragically eating his girlfriend, I think, because of what? You know, and and I think think Highlander has a lot of parallels with that, and and it, 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 it evinces the romantic side of, of fantasy very, very successfully. And I, I just, mm-hmm. I really like it. I'm a big softy at heart, really. Mm-hmm. I suppose it's got this big thing as well that it can sort of shift between being a sort of contemporary drama and, and sort of this, you know, mm-hmm. going back into the sort of Scottish Highlands. Um, and it, it makes it feel like, I guess that's one of the reasons why it is such a varied film and every scene has a kind of its own feel to it. Yeah, yeah. And the, the great thing is it's not just in Scotland it leaps about. He's the, there's a bit where he's in the 18th century yeah, England yeah. having the yeah. duel, drunk yeah. and yeah. Yeah. I love that, that <laughs> statement. Um, yeah. it just, it's just got so much potential. Mm. Um, for and, and as as the sequels and the I think the TV show sort of like didn't really capitalise on it on it brilliantly. It's funny, the there's so much in this film that is alluded to, that it never really explains. And I think it benefits from that. That's part of its charm. And, and in sequels where it tries to, perhaps, it, it, it falls flat. And, you know, that's a maybe a, a larger topic. Uh, but but there's things like, for instance, looking at it again, you know, um, Ramirez explains to, um, to Conor McLeod that, um, you know, we, we never fight on Holy Land. That's just tradition. And you just want to go, but how did you all get together to decide that? Why wasn't there some almighty fight? How do you know that? You were born 2,000 years before Christ. When did the churches come into it? Uh, yeah, and, you know, yeah, there's, there's, yeah. It's just all this, and it's, and it's just thrown out there, and they go, okay, well, that's the rules then. And, uh, and um, you know, and I, I, kind of, I, I kind of quite like that about it. There's just things that are sort of tossed into conversation. You kind of go, oh, I'll just accept that as the law of this you know, of this world then. On one level, it's a very silly mythology. You know, these guys who live forever and want to chop each off each other's head until there is one left. Mm. Um, but at the same time, it completely buys into it and it doesn't try and explain it away. Yeah, yeah exactly. You know, it's mm. like, well, why aren't there any female sort of immortals? Ne- never yeah. goes there. Um, how have they got this power? You know, it, it's just you accept it because mm. I think... You, otherwise you risk getting into midichlorian territory where it's like yeah, yeah. You know, th- this has happened and obviously i think the sequel did that but uh oh god did it do it uh, <laughs> 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 but zeist um but, but you know the 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 sean connery as ramirez his opening narration where he's going down through the centuries we came you know everything you need to know uh, yeah. You don't need to know any more than that. And then it just kicks off into that fantastic opening scene where, you know, Christophe, the best Belgian Scott ever, is watching <laughs> that, um, that huge like wrestling bout in that massive arena where everyone's screaming. And then he has a sword fight. I mean, for God's sake, it's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Partly because of the way that he's delivering a lot of his lines phonetically, I think, I suspect, the because he's you know not a, not a native English speaker and certainly not, not a native Scott speaker, but... It, it lends some of the lines that he says a weight that works beyond the lines themselves. Just some really amazing quotable stuff in there, and we should talk about how amazing Clancy Brown is as well. But but oh, even yeah. just but even just Lambert just saying things like you know when he's asked where are you from Nash and he goes lots of different places. <laughs> you, just, you just think, well that's that's just that's kind of a crappy line, but it's just sort of so odd, you know, that comes yeah. out of his mouth. I know you love it. 
Well, also the fact that his accent is all over the place. Yeah. Yeah. People's accents do change over time. Humans will change their accents in order to fit into, sometimes consciously so, but unconsciously so. And if if you've lived in like multiple different places over centuries and you can speak like 25 languages, your accent's probably not going to be a a wee happy Scottish brogue from the village (laughs) you came from, is it anymore? (laughs) It's going to yeah, be yeah. different places. <laughs> <laughs> but but um, does your accent usually change in the space of four words? That's true. It's <laughs> mine. <laughs> but I, I, I could never really get over the Sean Connery with his Scottish accent um, playing an Egyptian who'd been in Spain for like 400 years or whatever. Yeah. I call it a quickening. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you must learn to control your temper, Highlander. No uh, so, but yeah. I think he gets away with it because he's Sean Connery. Yeah, and, oh, totally. And he also oh, yeah, has yeah. like one of the best entrances ever. I loved it when he came in. He's like, "What is that?" <laughs> <laughs> he, like sort of flare of purple that suddenly appeared. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, not many people could carry off that outfit, right? But he does. He yeah, does. Even he when he's running along the yeah. beach, which is again such a random thing to see. <laughs> well, he's, he, I'm gonna tell you what, Sean Connery almost manages to carry off the man nappy in Zardos. Yeah, this guy, is, <laughs> this guy is like a film star. That's why he's so brilliant. It's, it's in the why same way Bond? that Alec Guinness managed to. You know, bring um, George Lucas's fairly mediocre lines for Obi Wan Kenobi to life. Sean Connery has got almost the same level of screen presence and gravitas mm. as um, as Alec Guinness did. This is why you employ people like that for your mm. <laughs> your mid range budget um, sci fi things mm. to make them better. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I, I think this is kind of the start of the reinvention of Sean Connery because, you know, he'd been Bond and, you know, the 70s weren't a time of massive hits for him. And, and, yeah, well, <laughs> Zardos, exactly, exactly. And, you know, he, he sort of, after this, he went and did The Untouchables for which he won an Oscar, then yeah. it's Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade. And then through the 90s, he's kind of, he becomes a star. He even becomes an action star again in The Rock. Yeah, in The Rock. And, and this, yeah. is, this is kind of what starts that. And I think that, they knew that they need why they wanted Sean Connery for that kind of gravitas. And they got him in, I think, for two weeks, if I'm remembering correctly. And they paid him a lot of money for that. And actually, he's not in the film very he's much. not very much. And, I've forgotten know, how And they did some it. studio stuff. They did some location stuff. Yeah. And, and part of his contract meant that, I, can't, I mean, I can't remember exactly how many millions it was, but if he went a minute over, they were going to have to pay him more millions. So they just yeah. had to rush to, to get everything they needed from him in That's time. That's I like to run my business. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of feels like that. Like. It kind of feels like he's he's sort of, you know, kind of building up his sort of pace among in the film and, and his presence there. And then he's just kind of suddenly is in the battle and, and dies. Although, and even though he pretty much has almost cut his head, you know, right, so head close, up within yeah. the first two seconds and then suddenly yeah, Hal yeah. still loses the battle. So mm. this kind of makes more sense to me now, like, mm. the monetary situation. The question I kept finding myself coming back to is why didn't they all just gang up against what's Kurgan, his name? Kurgan. Yeah. Kurgan. That's Instead because of they're like... all fundamentally untrustworthy, that's why. <laughs> <laughs> but mm. that but speaking of Bond, that was how I kept envisaging the the villain. Because he very much felt like a Bond esque villain. And even had like his even monologue at the end. Like he just <laughs> evolved into that. 
Yeah. So Clancy Brown, yeah, he's uh, he, the the Kurgan is is kind of a bit of a pantomime, isn't he? Yeah, he's he's kind of that that Jaws star character, I guess. But Clancy Brown is so good. I love Clancy Brown and all the things that he's in. And in this, he just he just kind of he's so terrifying in that role. Mm. Yeah, he is. He, and for years and years and years, that's how I saw him. Right, um, <laughs> I saw him. I, I I used to think Clancy Brown was genuinely quite scary. Uh, but he is he's great in that apparently i was i was reading that they wanted to get him uh, in to do a, 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 a scene in highlander 2 and he just went this is rubbish i'm not going to do that <laughs> you can pay me a lot of money to do something bad or you can pay me uh, no money to do something good but i'm not doing something bad for nothing <laughs> yeah. him. and i was like yeah you go clancy you go <laughs> the kurgan is anything but subtle I mean, there was no one on that set there was no one on that set saying oh can you pull it back a little bit Clancy mm-hmm. get your tongue out further Clancy further <laughs> <laughs> I also, also love how this guy who'd been at you know battles in the highlands it's sort of sort of lent into this very punky look yeah as he reached the yeah. 80s yeah 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 um, exactly yeah. there's definitely an evolution of his film <laughs> what, the sort of paper clips on his neck really yeah, fit with, you know they sort of in, in, you know inspired the sex pistols <laughs> <laughs> He was before his time, clearly. There's a Henry Cavill reboot, right? Mm, I, right, yeah. yes. So there's news Rich about him. mentioned on his, uh, on his email to me, and uh, I read about on Twitter only the other day, and I, I do hope that gets off the ground and they do it justice, because I think it's mm. a concept that's got a lot of... A lot, I never really... It's got a lot of potential. I never really liked the TV show, really, mm. because it, it came out at that time of, of, of... When science fiction was beginning to come out of hibernation when everything was made in Canada for, for beans and bits of string. And uh, Adrian Paul was a lovely... I interviewed Adrian Paul. He's a lovely, lovely man. But, you know, it just com- overly complicated the mythos of the show, of the film, and it just didn't have that sort of purity or the visual flair that we were talking about or anything else, really, apart from the idea. And I mean, it was very popular at the time, and they did a good job with it, but... I'd still think the the definitive version uh, or the definitive follow-up to the original film is yet to be made. So if you had to take bets on where they'll go with the reboot, what would you guess? Straight remake, I think. Mm. I think they'll just just do a straight remake. Mm. Yeah, I can't see them wanting to continue on in the same continuity. Um, I, I think it's, first of all, it's so convoluted. There's so much there and there's contradiction. I mean, hasn't Highlander 2 been disowned? I mean, it's just, yes, it has. It's just not canon. It's not um, canon. I was reading about, um, I went to see both Highlander 2. Oh God, I was so disappointed by that film. It was one of the first serious film conversations me and my next brother down had about movies and we were both reading about, we read the review of it in Empire. I was old enough to go to the cinema to see it. He wasn't. And I was just like, it's just, it was just, well, shit. It's the only word that's <laughs> Terribly sorry to foul the airwaves with bad language, but it was just terrible. For anyone who hasn't seen it, what is so bad about it? It just makes no sense. It completely undercut. They, they changed the mythos of the they changed the mythos of the the first film in that um, the immortals turn out to be renegade generals who are exiled from the planet Zeist by wow. I think is it Michael Ironside who's the bad yeah, guy? Yeah, that's right. Usually. Um, and yeah. <laughs> they, um, and Christopher Lambert, Christoph Lambert is wearing a really, really bad saggy rubber face, and he's invented a laser shield to protect the Earth 
from the sun's ultraviolet light because it's lost its ozone um, layer. His wife died, so that's what he did with the prize, basically. Plunged us all into sort of a very low-budget cyberpunk gloom um, or the light of a lava lamp. And mm. he, he, two aliens are sent to assassinate him from the planet Zeiss because they decide they want to, after exiling these people, this is what I mean, it makes no sense, after exiling these people to fight it out down the ages, why did they give them superpowers and let them fight? And they send two flying guys down with bird wings on who look like, um, they, I think they've got bird, they fly anyway, they remind me very much of the Hawkmen from Flash Gordon. And one <laughs> of them gets his head cut off by a tram, I believe, it's a long time since I saw it, and Christophe Lambert, as Connor McLeod does absolutely nothing really in order to um, get the power from this thing. He fights. I think he fights one of them with a, a, a with a, um, a steel tube or something. Then they bring Ramirez back, and it makes it just makes no sense. It makes no sense. It's just so low budget and awful. It's just awful. It's, it's kind of the freeform jazz of script writing. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. but freeform jazz can be quite good. <laughs> <laughs> I believe that um, those two horror words of uh, Hollywood are involved, uh, contractual obligation. Uh, <laughs> I believe that Christopher Lambert and uh, Russell Mackay both had to do a sequel if it got made. So, Yeah, right. well, bad idea. And then they did another one, which was uh, tied in slightly into the TV show, and it was about a sorcerer who was entombed in a mountain and, and uh, Conor McLeod actually hadn't won the prize because there was this other immortal who was safely out of the way in a mountain in Japan or China or somewhere. <laughs> and, uh, and, he's, and it's got Mario Van Peebles in it, a Star Wars of, of dodgy 80s and early 90s um, <laughs> action films. Um, yeah, and that was better, but it was like an up-budgeted version of one of the TV show episodes. Because in the TV show, it was Duncan McLeod, wasn't it? It was. It was his years. cousin. Yeah. Both immortal. Both what immortal. The what, what the chance of that? <laughs> <laughs> and then they did another one, and uh, Highlander 4, which had them both in it. I think. Right. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Um, I think I'd lost interest by that point. In terms of the reboot, Henry Cavill is starting to corner the market on uh, men wielding big swords, right? He's already got he is, the winner. I think so. that'll be He's a big yeah, nerd, isn't he? He's a big, yeah. big nerd. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. But I have to say that, like, I can totally imagine him as the a sword wielding Highlander <laughs> immortal. Like, he just fits it for me. So I was really happy when I saw that. I thought. Uh, he's a massive Warhammer fan, you know, Henry Cavill. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I've seen his uh, Instagram if he's painting his um, Eldar or whatever it is that he... Um... Adeptus Custodius is what he's painting. Is that what it is? Okay, right, right. Guardians of the Emperor, yeah. Mm-hmm. Obviously, he's going to go for the biggest and best... Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, he's, a, he's a massive uh, gamer as well, isn't he? There's an Instagram video of him assembling his own PC as well. He's, uh, yeah, he's, yeah, he's, with his arms. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Very cool. Yeah, I think he, I think he'd make a good uh, a good. He's obviously got the sword. He's got the physicality for it, and he's got the sword fighting skills because some of the stuff he does in um, The Witcher when he's throwing that sword around it, it really, really impressive. I think mm. um, the physical side of stuff. Mm. Um, he's definitely got the right. presence. So yeah. Yeah, director of John Wick as well, Chad Stahelski. Yeah, yeah. Ah, interesting. So I've interviewed him and um, talking about John Wick, and he he's kind of a, a sort of fantasy nerd as well, and he was saying that their sort of plan for John Wick was that it was a King Arthur-style story, but it happened to be updated to the modern age, and they, they wore posh suits. That was their suit of armour, and their, their guns were their swords, and their, and everyone was kind of like a 
like a champion of a certain thing. And and uh, and so he, he talked quite a lot when I interviewed him about John Wick, about kind of being quite inspired by myth and legend and, and Arthurian uh, stories and things. So oh. he, I can sort of see him diving into Highlander and sword fighting and things. Yeah, yeah. Well, that might work, mightn't it? Yeah. Just provided this um, Conor McLeod's quest isn't set off by the beheading of his pet dog. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure this is a great idea. <laughs> really? Yeah, because... I kind of think Highlander is so of its time. And I think there have been so many big fantasy things now. And this idea of these guys running around sort of New York, cutting each other's heads off. I don't know. I just don't know. I see how it will work. I think it works in in the original because it's shot like a music video. If someone sort of shoots it a different way and tries to make it look like the Witcher or Mm. Game of Thrones, Will that be the same? No, you might be right. No. I mean, I think I, I do have some underlying misgivings about it, but I like the concept so much. I just kind of hope it works. Well, hopefully part two was better than the quickening. If not, we'll get our coats. We'll be back in a sec to talk news. Before we enter the new zone, a more topical but considerably less freaky version of the Twilight Zone, it's time to supply some information. Our next episode, heading your way sometime during the week commencing 14th of June, will be dedicated to the wonder of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. So bring along your towel, have a cup of tea, and remember, don't panic. We can't guarantee any ultimate questions to life, the universe, and everything, but the answer, we've got covered. It's 43, right? And don't forget the entire Robbie the Robot's Waiting Back catalogue, including our succinctly titled What We Were Watching and Reading While We Were Away special, is available now with your podcast provider. Okay, welcome to part three, otherwise known as the news. Uh, Loads to talk about because science fiction and fantasy haven't really stopped while we've been away. Uh, But I'm going to start with something that has only just been launched because it's kind of exciting because it has been nearly two years since we've seen a Marvel movie Mm -hmm. at the cinema. Uh, we've got Black Widow out in July. Then we've got Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. And then we've got Eternals. Uh, so they've just debuted a trailer. What do you think of it? I quite like the look of it. But yeah. my problem is I can never tell the difference between the Eternals and the Inhumans. Yeah. <laughs> it all just blend, right. you know, it all just blends into one giant Jack Kirby cosmic porridge. But um, I'm, I'm pretty sure oh. having a movie will will set me right and and brush me up on that particular aspect of the Marvel mythology. Oh, excuse me, I, I just either want to watch the movie Jack Kirby's Cosmic Porridge or listen to the album. <laughs> 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 it does look good, though. It look, you know, it, it looks like a it looks like a good watch, and and it it definitely held my attention. It had a bit of a it had a bit of a, a whiff of Wonder Woman to it, actually. I thought. Mm. Mm. Yeah, maybe, maybe. It, yeah, it felt. It definitely felt epic. It does sort of raise the question of where the Eternals were the whole time during the war with Thanos and yeah. um, all the, yeah. the other things that were going on. Yeah. Well, they do allude to the fact that they they've come back for something and they, they've let everything else pass. So yeah. presumably that's going to be a big part of it. And they do mention the Avengers and that you know yeah. who's going to lead. It. Um, now that Steve Rogers and, and Iron Man have gone. I do quite like that at the end where they're just like, Richard Man's like, I'll do it. <laughs> it's a great way. And I'm like, is, 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 he, is he now in the Avengers? What's happening? But I think it's true. Like, what is bigger than Thanos killing half the universe? That they're like, no, we'll let that pass. But something else has happened that's made them step up. 
Yeah, yeah. Where where is your threshold? Exactly. No, no. <laughs> your leave bar it, guys. might be set. Leave it. A leave it. High. Leave it. Yeah, now we're, now we're involved. In. <laughs> Cats are missing. All hands on deck. <laughs> exactly. But it was a fantastic trailer, and it was. It had a. It had that epic yet ethereal feel to it, which which seems I think fairly distinctive. So I think it's going to be slightly different film for Marvel and certainly what people are saying but I'm definitely excited I mean the names attached alone are amazing oh, yeah. Angelina Jolie right wow yeah, oh yeah, I know yeah. Salma Hayek one of my faves that's pretty cool isn't it mm-hmm. I mean it, it just I think part of the part of the problem for me in, in getting my head around it is the shape of the Marvel universe throughout the earlier phases was becoming more and more clearly delineated in terms of where the story was going. But now we've no idea what's going to happen next. Mm-hmm. So in my head, I don't know where to put this this new bit of narrative information. And, and I yeah. feel a little bit lost. And, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's quite cool and intriguing. But at the same time, it's not what I've become used to. Right. I think that's really good, though. I, I really do that. You know, they're now making films that are based on more obscure characters, and you know, this looks very thematically different. This doesn't look like a superhero film. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's not a guy or, or woman uh, suddenly discovering they have powers and how they deal with those powers. This is an ensemble who have always had powers yeah. and have always been there. And I, I think what's particularly interesting about this film is the director Chloe Zhao, who. Just won an Oscar for Nomadland, mm-hmm. and that is the furthest a film could possibly be from a Marvel blockbuster. Yeah. Has anyone else seen it? No, no I haven't yet. Actually, um, I mean, it's, you can watch it on Disney Plus. I mean, I actually saw it at the cinema, but it, it's. I mean, it looks incredible, but it's so slow. It's almost like watching a documentary, and it, it's. I, I was just sitting there thinking, I cannot imagine how you'll move how she's going to move on right. to a marvel movie and, and what marvel's marvel saw in her films that made you think yeah this is good for a marvel film <laughs> right. but at the same time marvel are very good at finding um sort of indie talent mm. yeah you know and 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 actually that they've seemed to have a policy now that they don't go for big name directors they actually sort of sign up um i, I guess sort of up and comers like Taika Waititi is like the yeah. case, the best case in point, isn't it? Because Thor Ragnarok was brilliant. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I, I watched that again recently. It's just fun. I, he's a friend from work. <laughs> oh, it's so brilliant. Funny. I mean, it, it's kind of he's just been given the chance to make a comedy movie. Yeah, you put in some superheroes as well, yeah. but just you know, make us laugh. What what I think is really interesting uh, about that that um, desire to find um, younger talent or fresher talent it sort of contrasts very heavily with what Star Wars was doing, where they did exactly the same thing, but every mm. time they got someone new in, they completely interfered with what they were doing and then fired them. Whereas mm-hmm. at least in the Marvel, on the Marvel side of things, they actually seem to have enough confidence to allow these people to run with their creative visions and their own stories, mm. which I think Star Wars has suffered for that, actually. If I'm remembering correctly, and Guy, you probably know better than me, the Eternals are the ancient um, beings that are responsible for creating the Inhumans and moving them to the moon. And it's then, not, is that right? It's not quite that simple. And I do know better than you, but only because I looked it up on Wikipedia yesterday. <laughs> right. Uh, right. And, and it is that the Celestials create oh, okay, right, right. the Eternals. And then the and they they did experiments on various sentient races, including including the Kree and the mm. Skrull. 
And then mm. that led to a sort of parallel development of superpowered individuals right. in both yeah. populations. But the Eternals were the first ones the Celestials worked on. And then the, the Inhumans were created by the Kree, I think, or the Skrull, who were trying to replicate the Celestials' experiments so that they could stabilize right. their own degenerating genetic code or something gotcha. like that. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, right. okay. they are, I mean, they are very, very similar characters. And they do sort of similar things and they have similar origins. And it does feel like a little bit of duplication in the old Marvel um, universe there. Right. Because, of course, the Celestials have already appeared because Ego in Guardians of the Galaxy 2 is a Celestial. And you get that uh, Nowhere is a Celestial skull, isn't it? And then there's the guy in the flashback, uh, the big giant Celestial leveling that city with the Infinity Stone on the end of his staff um, in one of the first ones. I was looking that up the other day. Mm -hmm. Look him up. Um, Yeah. So they have been in there, and I, I have been reading, as, as, as was my want when I used to do this for a living, I, um, uh, I've been looking at this up and reading about it online, and it does look like a lot of people are speculating that the Celestials are going to play an important um, part in the uh, next phase of the Marvel movies. Right, right, right. Uh, mentioned Star Wars there. Uh, it looks like Rangers of the New Republic, one of the spin-offs from The Mandalorian, isn't happening. Uh Sort of haven't explained why, but it looks quite likely that it's because Gina Carano uh, was well sacked from The Mandalorian, and right. she would have been a logical lead for it, I guess. Yeah, shame, shame though, isn't it? It's it's a shame. Like it could be quite good. Again, it, it feels like Star Wars. Um, the, the, it feels like The Mandalorian has been this huge success, and then suddenly <laughs> they've sort of gone on the back burner. This show they announced in December, and if you look at since Disney bought Star Wars, they've had. You know, Boba Fett thing gets abandoned. They've had so many changes of director. Um, it doesn't feel as um, it just doesn't feel as stable as Marvel, does it? Right. No, it doesn't. And um, I, I don't think the stories are quite as well told either. I mean, The Mandalorian was great, but it was basically like an old Western show. It was ten minutes of story with a big action sequence, and it was great, and I really loved it. But um, I think when it got to the end, it got all a bit fan servicey, a little bit too fan. <laughs> Bringing Luke Skywalker back. I went to see the last Star Wars movie with my son, who was like ten at the time, ten or eleven at the time. And the moment Chewie got his medal, he turned around and looked at me and went, "There is far too much fan service in this movie." <laughs> <laughs> I think I think that tells you what's wrong with that property. Wow, <laughs> that's funny. That's insightful, a 10-year-old. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I, I think there's a lot to love in Star Wars. I think they've done a great job with The Mandalorian, and I, I think mm. I've been a bit nitpicky there, really, because it is it is fantastic. And although I say, oh, yeah, loads of fan service, I actually did get a massive thrill out of seeing Luke Skywalker chopping up um, the droids that I used to fight in ancient Star Wars computer games years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I, I, I'm torn on it. I'm really, really torn on it, to be honest. Well, now they've got a new boss, right? Dave Filoni is taking over, I think, as is it executive creator? He's director, executive creative director, yeah. And he was—he's already showrunning Ahsoka. He's directed episodes of The Mandalorian, right? Um, and and I think after what he's done on the Clone Wars and Rebels, I mean, he's like a natural heir to George he is, Lucas. Yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah. He, he was George Lucas's prodigy, really. He spotted him as to bring him in to to make. Uh, uh, the Clone Wars, and you know, Which I love he, that. He, yeah, oh, Clone yeah. Wars is great, and 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 actually, that he's got, he had George Lucas's ear, and you know, he would just be like, hey, mm. hey, George, what do you think of this? You know, he he's got Star Wars just 
coming out of him if yeah. that's not a horrible that's phrase a but absolutely and he's you know, such, he, you he, know, just he loves it, it so much yeah he loves it so yeah. much and he's such a big nerd as well and he's i i because i i met him at san diego comic-con and he's a big doctor who right. fan and it's interesting with the announcement of him getting promoted it's so lovely how there's not been a bad word said about him everyone from fans to other yeah. people in the industry just seem really pleased by that which is nice you know that's yeah, un- yeah, it's unusual yeah, yeah. to have such a, a just a general feeling of uh, a sort of well-being about somebody's creativity but I, I think star wars's big problem is actually the original movies which is a really contradictory thing to say but everything gets judged against them and i think one of the reasons the mandalorian has been so successful is that it's a completely different format mm. you know you're not expecting it to follow the beats of a trilogy mm. um you know when the when lucas made the like prequel trilogy everyone just wanted to see the sort of again. what they'd seen before yeah. with this like different you know, different idea or, or they wanted the whole three films to be about well as one of our guests said a couple of weeks ago to just be anakin's descent yeah, and George Lucas wanted to do something different. Well, I rewatched. I rewatched last over last year. I, I rewatched all the Star Wars stuff that exists yeah. that's currently. I didn't watch Are Droids. I rewatched Cartoon or Caravan well, of Courage. Droids. Droids is going to be on Disney Plus very soon. Oh, oh great! <laughs> I can show that my son the horrors of nineteen eighties animation with a theme uh, tune sung by Stuart Copeland from the Police. <laughs> I loved it at the time. I did love it at the time. But um, I actually really, looking back at the, I think there were some serious missteps in The Phantom Menace. But mm. I actually think that the prequel trilogy is loads better than people give it credit for. And it's it's almost like, I think the, the, the sad thing about it is that George Lucas was bearing the weight of the whole thing on his shoulders alone. Um, yeah. And th- there wasn't that sort of sense of... Um, you know, collaboration, which I think you need sometimes to really, really refine something. But the story, the idea that this guy is setting up this secret plot and he's a figure in the shadows and everything, it works really, really well as a Mm. plot and as a narrative. And I actually really enjoy um, Revenge of the Sith. I I still think that's like my third favourite Star Wars movie, I think. J.J. Abrams is uh, really ticking off his franchises. He's done Star Trek. He's done Star Wars. And that looks like he's going to DC as well. Um, he's producing, mm. possibly producing a new Superman movie. Wow. Mm. Yeah. Also lens flare. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> is that J.D. Abrams or J.J. Abrams? <laughs> I think each J.J. is different, right? It's like going to be John uh, Jules, John <laughs> Jr., uh, Jeremy. JL, Justice League Abrahams, as they call yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Justice Abrams, yeah. I can yeah. see that. I'll be him doing that, won't it? Jor-El <laughs> Abrams, actually. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. oh, oh nice. <laughs> uh, uh, but it, no, he's you know the thing is he makes uh, he, he mentioned those franchises there, but also we could say Mission Impossible as well. You know, oh, yeah. he's, right. he's he's really done some some stuff and and really great great films. So um, he he tells a really good action film. Sometimes you know, as I think with um, with uh, um, the Force Awakens, perhaps there's sort of you know less kind of on rewatches. I'm sort of less excited about that film as I was when it first came out. But he knows how to make things exciting. He knows how to how to tick boxes and I, and I, and I, and I think he does understand those, those things. So, you know, I, I, I can see that. Um, and, um, I think it's, I think it's interesting with DC that there's been so much talk about it recently with like the, the Snyderverse and where we are with that. Um, but now we've got the metaverse coming along. So we could see multiple versions of the, of, of the DC universe, right. With, with, you know, with, with all these things existing alongside each other, the flash and all that that we've got coming up, Batman. Yeah. I think the most interesting thing about J.J. Abrams coming into this is that he's got a track record of not being particularly adherent to canon. Mm. 
Um, right. You know, Star Trek, there's things that yeah. happen, like, what, beaming at warp speed or something. It's like, mm-hmm. you couldn't even do that in the next generation. How is this happening? And, and various things in Star Wars where things are created because they're convenient for the plot. Um, and, and I, you know, look at the controversy with uh, Man of Steel when Superman kills the guy and, and, and what happens if you do play around with canon. So mm. I, I'm not sure. I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing to muck around with canon, but I think given JJ Abrams history, I think that makes this an interesting proposition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like Dave says, he does a great action movie, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think his stories are terribly deep sometimes, um, but he certainly knows how to wring a lot of excitement out of the properties he works on. Yeah. And, and you can see in things like Super 8 that he's really a fan of those kind of 80s movies. He, he sort of feels like he exists in a sort of filmmaking tradition that Spielberg's part of. And so if he's taking as his inspiration, you know, the uh, Christopher Reeve Superman, for instance, if that's his sort of, you know, sort of spiritual uh, inspiration, that, that could be interesting. Yeah, 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 yeah. You never know where he's going to go like Rich is. So. Well, he's he's been given something like $500 million in his deal. So that's a lot of opportunity to muck around. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, with DC. You can make a lot of Supermen for that. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I, I thought I was doing that. I'd be really tempted to make, like, some really terrible sort of, like, cine film thing for just $95. <laughs> <laughs> Other end of the scale spectrum, um, Attack the Block 2. Hey! Yeah. Mm -hmm. Love it. Yeah, it's not something I expected. Uh, You know, it just felt like a a cool British indie sci-fi, but Joe Cornish, John Boyega, both back. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Awesome. Do you know, I'm not that massively... I really liked Attack the Block. and I don't... To be honest with you, I barely remember it. I just remember being entertained by it. I like um, Joe Cornish's uh, stuff and Adam Buxton when they used to do Adam and Joe. I used to love that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and I really hope to see John Boyega in more stuff because... I think he's a pretty solid actor, actually. He's yeah, good, yeah. yeah. Um, he's just been in small acts, right? Really well received. Um, he was great in Star Wars. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, in short change by Star Wars because he he has yeah. so much to do in the um, the Force Awakens. Yeah, and and then they just don't know what to do with him. And I, I think that was one of the big problems with the sort of sequel trilogy, you know, he doesn't really have much to do in even the last Jedi, which is a film that I like. And, and then mm. rise of Skywalker, you know, why he got yeah. off better than Rose did though. Could, oh, I mean, yeah, well, Rose, yeah. That was he shocking. Play, but, yeah. She had to go do a revising or whatever. You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh God. It had really, really short change. The, um, uh, you're going to have to bleep this out on the recording, Rich. But one of the things I, I like about Attack the Block is that the uh, the alien invaders are just called Big Alien Gorilla Wolf. That's, the, that's, just, that's just what they're called. <laughs> that's awesome. What's it got? Jodie Whittaker in it, of course. The first one, of course. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. And Nick Frost. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I wonder where they're going to go with it. They Do, does it say much about the premise of the sequel? Some aliens attack a block of flats. <laughs> well, I think it's going to be called Attack the Blocks. Yeah. Attack the Blocks, yeah, exactly. That's great. Well, I guess, you know, it's it's um, the lead character was 15 at the time, John Berger's character was 15, and, and it's sort of been 10 years, so I'm going to assume that they've sort of grown up and it's London 10 years later, right? Maybe they've, but, like, um, moved to Manchester or something. <laughs> right, maybe, maybe. Uh, oh, John I said, I'm excited to see this heightened story turn to the streets of London. There you um, go. There you go. So, uh, I like the pun. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they're going to do a taller building. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it'd be interesting if they do go bigger, actually, because you know they now have a 
quite a big star in there. Yeah. Um, and and you know, sequels mm. have this tendency to go bigger, but do you then lose something? Um, attacking Canary Wharf or something like that. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. heightened story. I mean, <laughs> he said that for a reason. That is an yeah, unusual yeah. turn of phrase. They'll be attacking yeah. like the Gherkin or, or something yeah. like that. It'll it'll turn out that the um, the kids and the gang were all actually renegade aliens from Zeist. (laughs) 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 Sent to Earth to fight it out. Did anyone get a chance to watch the Last Night in Soho trailer? I did. Uh, The main thing I took about out of it was, ooh, there's Matt Smith. (laughs) (laughs) I thought that when I was seeing when I saw the pictures from House of the Dragon the other day. Actually, ooh, there's Matt Smith with blonde hair. (laughs) <laughs> he's so distinctive isn't he in the crowd oh, as well he is he cropped up in Alan Partridge the other day oh, he's everywhere yeah, I quite like this trailer so it's the new Edgar Wright film um, and it's a it's quite a, a kind of odd trailer I mean it's mm. it's a very high concept horror um, so you've got this young woman uh, played by Thomasin McKenzie who is in Soho contemporary Soho but she starts seeing reflections of well, it's not herself. It's another woman, but who f- sort of follows her moves, uh, played by Anya Taylor Joy, um, and she's in the sixties. So there's this kind of like meeting between the sixties and the present. And obviously, there's the contrast between Soho of the sixties and Soho of the now. Um, and there's some horror things go on. It's it's a really good trailer, and I, you know, I, I think. I have no idea what the film's about, <laughs> yeah. uh, but I kind of want to find out, and I think. Yeah, Edgar Wright is a really ah. he's he's a filmmaker I like to watch. Um and you know, all his films are stylish. That he's really inventive. Um and I don't but I mean he's made obviously Shaun of the Dead, which is horror in many ways, but he's not really made a, a kind of straight horror. Mm. And I think he's it's not obviously it's gonna have some of his twists to it, I think, but I, I think I'm really keen to see what he does with that. Yeah, I like Edgar Wright. I, think, I like his films, and uh, if he's doing a pro- and, and when you said it was a woman moving the same way as her, I thought that's is that a horror movie? So yeah, it was either Sliding Doors or horror. It was, it was <laughs> so I'm glad it's. I'll definitely be picking that up. I really like Anya Taylor Joy as well. Actually, I rewatched oh, the yeah. the other night, um, which I really really like that movie. Um, she's brilliant in that. Oh, and Queen's Gambit is fantastic. Yeah, I have, yet to, I have yet to watch that, but it's on my list. There's going to be a spin-off from Rick and Morty. Uh, they're doing their own take on the Avengers. The Vindicators a- appeared in a season three episode. Um, is this a good idea? I mean, I, I do like Rick and Morty, but I'm not sure I need a spin-off. I've only ever watched Rick and Morty once, right? And um, it's one of the very few things, because I watched one episode of it, that my I won't let my son watch because he's ever since he was very young he's not been scared by monsters he's not frightened by anything by anything he's very sensible he doesn't mimic anything stupid um, you know if you show him like a film with sword fighting in it he's not going to pick up a stick and poke someone's eye out um, but I watch Rick and Morty and so I let him watch all kinds of grown up stuff right but I watched Rick and Morty and they went to some kind of fetish club where pigs were peeling each other alive or something really weird like that. <laughs> and I just thought, no, no, he's too young for this. He's <laughs> too, too young for this. Pig peeling is for when he's 15 plus. <laughs> yeah, indeed, indeed. Then he can knock himself out. But yeah, just for the time being, I, I reserve the right to exercise my parental veto. But it's supposed to, you know, I've seen bits of it and it, it, it you know, it's quite funny. So The thing is as well, it's really smart. That, yeah, that's the thing. Yeah, yeah. There are 
some of the gags in it, you know, in a Futurama type of way. Um, I mean, I suppose you could make the comparison that, you know, if Futurama is like the Simpsons of sci-fi, this is more family guy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, it's ruder and, uh, and everything, but you know, it is some of the sci-fi concepts in it are absolutely genius. It is um, very rude. It is incredibly rude. Um, also, I kind of just there's so much they do in the sci-fi thing with you know the idea of the Doc Brown Marty figures going around. I, I wonder how much the potential is for superheroes because superheroes are done everywhere, and you, the boys does extreme superheroes really, oh, really well. I like the boys. Um, I think they're going to a very crowded marketplace by doing anything with superheroes. Yeah, yeah. Mind you, though, it's possible to do humorous uh, superhero cartoon stuff, isn't it? Yeah, like um, Teen Titans Go was pretty good. I enjoyed that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I think it's a different audience, though, to be fair. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Hollywood likes nothing more than recycling an old idea. she has already been brought back. Now it's the turn of He-Man, and Kevin Smith mm. is involved. Uh, pictures have been released. Yeah, it, it does look like He-Man. Um, it does. They certainly haven't reinvented <laughs> it, have they? No, it looks well, just like a Harry Potter animation. Um, but the voices, I think, are interesting. Um, I mean, they've got Mark Hamill in there as Skeletor. Which He's a great voice actor. Excellent, excellent yeah. choice. Um, Chris Wood, actually, who's mo- probably best known as Monel from Supergirl, is mm-hmm. playing He-Man. Um, so I think he's going to get his have to get his like gruffness on to do that. Um, is it going to work though? I remember I watching. Sure. I could tell. I think that I was born to be like a science fiction critic before I became a writer. Because I remember watching He Man when I was the target age group for it, thinking they've got all these massive tanks and super powerful energy weapons, and they've also got swords. But every single episode ends up with Skeletor going He Man, and then they're throwing <laughs> rocks at each other. Right? <laughs> and that, like, that's it. Um, so I hope I hope they develop the uh, I hope they develop the stories a little further. Um, it was no Thundercats, I'll say that. <laughs> it certainly was not. Well, a few things are. Aren't there a number of He-Man projects in development? This is one. Is Kevin Smith's? This is an animation, right? But isn't there also a live action development or something like that? There's, there's a number of projects that are, that are using this, this story. I, I mean, it's been, they're always floating around with He-Man. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it, mm-hmm. Dolph Lundgren won in 1987, and there have been other talk, uh, conversations, I think. Uh, and I think it was such a big deal, and you know, the toys were such a big deal, they're always going to want, want to. It is a bizarre franchise. I mean, it, it is clearly a franchise that was led by toys. Um, yeah. I'm pleased to see that Mossman, uh, who <laughs> I don't think anyone really cared about, you know, a, a villain made of moss, um, <laughs> that, that he is clearly a big player in this. Um, Be- Beastman, yeah. I mean, the, the imagination in some of the character names. Uh, <laughs> I, I do like, though, that in this one, uh, Prince Adam actually does look like a, a small, small man rather than being a huge man who has exactly the same physique of He-Man. Same voice. And and basically, he he just gets a bit of a spray tan when he becomes He-Man and no one can recognise him. It's not even as good a disguise as glasses. It's a little bit bondage-y as well, I always thought, with the harnesses and the the furry underpants and the... Well, I was four four when I first watched this, so no, I didn't think that. Well, I was 12 (laughs) and I thought that. (laughs) (laughs) Was that a 
a low pitch version of Skeletor, Dave? I'm sure I've mentioned this before, actually, but I've met Mark Hamill and he is a great voice actor. There's actually, if you look it up on YouTube, there's a fantastic episode where um, the, he plays all the characters in a car as the Joker is uh, kidnaps a couple of characters and he plays all of the characters in, in, in the same wow. scene, which is amazing. But he's a great voice actor. And I met him and um, he was... Uh, you know, being interviewing him, and when I started speaking, he realised he said, "Oh, you're you're English," and then he just did me straight away. He just mocked, wow. he just replicated my accent, which is amazing. Uh, like, oh my god, I'm sat with Luke Skywalker, and he's doing an impression of me to me. I bet you straight. wish you had a recording of that. I do, I do. I hadn't even started the thing yet. Exactly. Oh, <laughs> that'd be great. No. <laughs> that's that's a some Jedi mind trick right there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Can, you never know. Just... You might, you might appear. Uh, as the voice uh, through Mark <laughs> oh Hamill. Oh my God, if, if Skeletor mysteriously yeah. sounds like someone. <laughs> <laughs> like you. <Yeah. laughs> I, I was inspired Beastman. by this guy I met once. He doesn't sound anything like the original Skeletor. Yeah, but he sounds like Dave Bradley. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. Um, just going back Man. to this voice cast, actually, this is incredible. I mean, mm. Beyond Mark Hamill, you've got uh, Sarah Michelle Gellar as yeah. Tina. You've got Alicia Silverstone as Queen Marlena. Yeah. Kevin Conroy, who's voiced Batman forever right. as Merman. And uh, Lena Headey from Game of Thrones playing the character with the best name in He-Man, Evil Lynn. Evil Lynn. Could she Lynn. ever go good? <laughs> Not with a name like that. I think there's a bit yeah. of nominative determination. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, she changes her name to Evil Rachel. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Evil Lynn. <laughs> Hyphenated. Hyphenated, yeah. It's with two ends. <laughs> Do you think it's just an affectation of Evelyn? I think yeah, so, maybe. yeah. Maybe. Ah, Evelyn. Oh, God. I, by the yeah. way, I've just Googled it, and of course I'd forgotten there's many faces who has many faces. Oh, yeah. my God. <laughs> Ram Ram. Ram Ram. Yeah, quality. Buzz off. And for <laughs> the ultimate in originality, there's man at arms. Right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Mecha neck. You have an extending neck. Honestly, they're like, they are like the less successful village oh. people or something. Well, one of them's called Fisto. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Dear me. Well, they were all based. The interesting thing about the He-Man toy designs is that that all the most of the torsos are all based off the same mold mm. and the same arms, and uh, they've just got di- they've just got different heads same and accessories, flat. basically. <laughs> yeah. Oh well. Except for the battle damage He-Man, where you could turn a little thing in his chest and it would show more damage. Luckily, they hit that tiny square of metal with that big rock. Also, Orko was one of the best action figures of all time because uh, you you put this little thing inside, um, like I guess plastic cord, and you put it through this hole, and and it just sort of whizzed around the the table. It was (laughs) like an expensive Happy Meal toy. Was Orko? It was yeah, yeah. They were just. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'd just like to reveal to you that apparently, uh, 10 years ago, uh, a man called Jamie Mokes decided that um, the next big commodity was going to be Ram Man figures because they were becoming rare. So he bought all of them. So, <laughs> so the, making them a valuable commodity. So uh, the mass produced 1980s figure, Action Man Ram Man, uh, now most of them are in the possession of a guy called Jamie Mokes who thinks they'll become incredibly valuable now. So um, if you're listening, so he- Jamie. 
Tell us how you're getting on with that. <laughs> AKA a- 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 the Ram Man, man. <laughs> the Ram Man Man. The Ram Man Man. Yeah. Ram man. <laughs> Maybe he could be like some sort of cunning meta figure in the new He-Man universe. The Ram Man right. Man. The He-Man Man. They could be like the gods or something. I don't know. I'm just throwing that out there. <laughs> it always surprises me when some people are just think, how do their brains work when they come up with an idea like that? Days. It does feel like a 2 a.m. decision. Yeah, at 2 a.m. and eight beers. I'm yeah. going to buy all the ram men. Ram men. <laughs> ram men. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, so, so, yeah, basically in He-Man, it's Beast, Man, Moss, Man, mm. Ram, uh, man. man. Yeah. Man at arms. Buzz off. You <laughs> 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 spoiled it now. He, he's like a bee. He's <laughs> got a bee. <laughs> they were obviously they're obviously uh, having a, a creative day that day they were right we will leave it there for this week um thank you very much guy thank you so Thanks, much guy. good to see you oh, it's been great fun um i really enjoyed that actually I'd, uh, I'd happily come back at some point in the future if you'll have me Excellent. especially if i've got something to sell <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good, good, good luck with the book launch <laughs> yeah. really? no i really appreciate it that was great fun and it was brilliant revisiting some of these uh, classics especially <laughs> so yeah thank you thank you very much Cheers. we'll be back sometime in early june to talk hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy and if you missed the whole of season one of robbie the robot's waiting don't worry the whole lot is available from your podcast provider if you feel so inclined you could even leave a review with them thanks for listening because who wants to live forever me <laughs> <laughs> On a day to leave that in. I will. I totally will.